Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. It's not 2024 yet, but already the presidential race is beginning to take shape. On the Republican side, former President Donald Trump remains the leading contender for the GOP nomination, though he faces considerable potential opposition from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and possibly from his own former Vice President Mike Pence. The Democratic side of the race, meanwhile, would seem like a foregone conclusion, though there are some who have questioned his viability for re-election given his age and some concerns over his performance. President Joe Biden, nevertheless, seems positioned to carry the banner once more for his party. But there's one declared candidate in the Democratic field who is worth taking note of. Author, spiritual teacher, and activist Marianne Williamson has long been a voice for both enlightenment and social justice and equality in American life. Though her campaign did not last long, she made a big splash on the Democratic debates page back in 2020 with some exciting performances. In spite of the fact that Democrats already hold the White House, Marianne believes that the country's establishment class needs to be challenged to pull America back from the brink. She's doing so from within the Democratic Party. I wanted to speak to Marianne because, on the whole, she has been a sincere voice for humanizing our politics. She tends not to trash her political opponents by name, says that neither party has a monopoly on wisdom or character. And while she is clearly progressive, she seems as willing to reflect on the shortcomings of her own side as criticize the Republicans for theirs. In this conversation, we talk about what it will take to rebuild goodwill between the American people, freedom of speech, the battle against the, quote, neo-fascist authoritarian threat she sees as coming from some factions on the right, as well as Marianne's view on the role of religion in transcending America's divides. And now, Marianne Williams. Marianne Williamson, welcome to Uniting America. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for having me. Oh, it is a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Very excited to speak to you today. And uh, yeah, well, you know, there's so much ground I want to cover with you. You are such a fascinating and I think unique figure uh, in the context of American politics and American uh, culture even, and certainly in the context of the presidential uh, race. And so uh, I want to talk about the race. I want to talk about a number of things. Um, particularly this larger subject of how do we heal the divides between the American people. But before we get too deep into it, I just I want to get one question um, out of the way right off the bat, because I think that there might be a number of uh, particularly Democrats uh, listening to us right now who might be thinking to themselves, John, you know, why are you talking to Marianne Williamson? Uh, we've got a presidential election coming up. Donald Trump may be the nominee again. We have our candidate. Uh, his name is President Joe Biden. He won in the last election. And uh, what can somebody running against President Biden in a primary hope to do other than potentially weaken um, what the person many folks will look at as the inevitable nominee uh, in a way that might make it easier for somebody like President Trump, let's say, uh, to win on the Republican side? What is your answer to folks who come to you with that sort of uh, that sort of a critique? Mm -hmm. In a democratic society, we don't have somebody telling us who the inevitable candidate is. We have an election. That's what elections are for. It's the voters who decide who the candidate will be. And the person who gets the most votes wins. <clears throat> That's what a democratic process is. So we don't get, to, you know, nobody gets to say, well, it's inevitable. So, of course, it will be this person or that person. That's not what you do in a democratic society. Now, I'm not without recognition of how important it is for the Democrats to beat back what is actually a neo-fascist authoritarian threat that is coming from some of our friends these days in the Republican Party. No one needs to tell me that. The issue is, it is not for me, and clearly for the majority of Democratic voters, a foregone conclusion that Joe Biden is the best person to put up in 2024. 2024 is not 2020. <clears throat> the majority of Democratic voters have said they'd like to hear from someone else as well. And so if Joe Biden, who has quite a different agenda than I do uh, for the next four years in America, if he puts that before the Democratic voters and they say that's the one we want and that's the one we think would be best to beat the Republicans in 2024, God bless him. I have a different view of things. <clears throat> I have a different agenda that I would be uh, presenting to the American people and a different way of looking at some things. Then 
they should have the chance and the choice to vote for me. That's simply democracy. Mm, Indeed. I want to come back to uh, one phrase that you used in just a moment. You said you described the Republican um, uh, opposition or perhaps. I said some forces, some forces. I, I certainly did not say that the Republican Party is a uh, is a neo-fascist or neo-authoritarian mm-hmm. uh, uh, threat. Some forces within a are. And right, uh, right. naming that, I believe, is part of the uh, part of the responsibility of a candidate that is trying to oppose it. Yes. Let's let's come back to that in, in just a moment, because I, I want to understand your, your thinking there uh, and your okay. and your choice of terminology. I do want to ask a more fundamental question, though, first, which is this. Uh, we were talking just a little bit before the uh, we started recording here. And I mentioned to you the fact that, you know, well before you ran for the Democratic nomination in uh, uh, 2020, uh, I was uh, familiar with you. I've been familiar with you with I think uh, most of most of my uh, most of my um, upbringing um, trying to think. I mean, you've been writing books and giving uh, spe- giving talks on spirituality and religious teaching for a good long while. And I was raised in a household where those sorts of themes and topics uh, were very important, particularly to my mother, who's a big fan of yours. So I told my mom that I was speaking to Marianne Williamson today. She was incredibly excited. And then I said to her, I said, well, you know, Marianne is uh, running for president again. Um, But then, you know, my mom, uh, she expressed a little bit of concern. I said, well, you love Marianne. Why would you be concerned about her running for president? And her answer was sort of along the lines of, I just get concerned when spiritual people go into politics uh, because politics is corrupting. Right. And she has a concern that good people in general and people for whom spiritual conscience is important that it's hard for goodness to survive once you step into the political arena. What, what's your answer for anybody who wonders, can the thing that makes Marianne Williamson special to people actually survive were she to have political power? How do you maintain a pure sense of, of who you are uh, if you find yourself uh, in that kind of a position of authority? Mahatma Gandhi said that anyone who thinks religion doesn't have anything to do with politics doesn't understand religion. Mm. Uh, We are on the earth to love one another. We are on the earth to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. However you name that sweet spot of spiritual understanding that is universal to all the spiritual and religious traditions. So if I'm supposed to love my child, that's my spiritual commandment. But I think the spiritual commandment at this time, in order to be the full expression of God's power on earth, has to mean we love other people's children too. We love the children on the other side of the the city. We uh, are willing to love the children on the other side of the earth. Now, once you get into that realm where you are standing for love, mercy, and compassion, not only for your own family, for your own community, but for people all over the world. Yes, it's true. You rub up against the institutional resistance of entire systems that find their profit-making capability undercut by that proposition. So you enter a dirty realm, you enter a corrupt realm. But what's happened in the last few decades is that a lot of the most spiritually faith-based people have, for the very reasons that your mother said, not wanted anything to do with politics because politics is so toxic. But think about that. If the people of the most heart-centered expression leave the toxic realm, it will only get more toxic. Mm. And, you know, as the French say, if you don't do politics, politics will do you. And I'm sure your mother certainly understands that. It is a, a dirty realm. I know really nobody knows it better than I. I sell books. I teach classes. Nobody comes unless they already like me. Nobody <laughs> reads a book unless they already like me. So I don't hear anybody else's opinion because if you don't like it, you just don't read the book and I can make a nice living and it's lovely. Right, right, sure. I get that. Nobody yeah. needs to remind me that, you know, you could have a much nicer life, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> but I believe, and I'm sure your mother realizes that as much as I do, that. This country must make a U-turn in some way. And that where we are now, no matter how fortunate you might be, no matter how privileged your position might be, none of us or our children are going to be safe 
if the kind of chaos that could very definitely emerge begins to emerge, uh, should we not turn some things around and make some fundamental reforms in this country? Mm, indeed. So I think at a certain point in life, you're trying to live the calling of your heart. That is the highest spiritual work. What is the calling of my heart? And I feel that politics is a place where perhaps I could help make a difference. Is it possible to make a real difference in American society in a way that is sustainable without also working towards strengthening the relationship that exists between the American people? I think that there are many folks who run for office, and I say this as somebody with a background in party politics and who's run for office himself. I think that there are many people who get involved in politics and think that it's really just a question of passing the right bills, passing the right legislation. But Polarization has become such a deeply rooted part of the business model of politics. And I think many of us are concerned that even if you get the right people uh, in office, whoever they may be, that ultimately if the American people are at each other's throats and are deeply distrustful of the parties, the institutions, and their neighbors, that it's going to be very difficult to sort of sustain progress in American life. Um, why... Um, why are we as divided uh, as we are, uh, Marianne? And as somebody who seeks to 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 be a, a leader in American society, what is the role potentially of presidential leadership in bringing us back together? If indeed you think that that healing is something we need to do, we need to be brutally honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. We need a president who helps us do that and look in the mirror. We have a political system that has actually exploited the division. It makes us look, ooh, the people on the left are the problem. Ooh, the people on the right are the problem. What's really the problem are forces that both the left and the right in power too often agree on. It's like in the movie, Don't Look Up, where it was, you know, don't look up into the sky. Here it's don't look up at the economic forces that are oppressing people, whether they are on the left or on the right. So this whole cultural war thing is a kind of veil of illusion before what's really happening. The real dichotomy is not the division between the left and the right. The real dichotomy in this country is the division between the powerful and the powerless, Mm. between those who own a, a, a very, very tiny portion of Americans who own the vast majority of America's wealth and other resources of opportunity versus the vast majority who do not. And our government, because it is so unduly influenced by those forces, whether they be insurance companies or big pharmaceutical companies, big agricultural companies, big chemical companies, big food companies, gun manufacturers, or defense contractors. Our government has become a system of legalized bribery, basically. Mm. That's what's really going on. People feel the agitation. People feel the pain of it because the vast majority of Americans are living in an economic struggle. And so too often the parties, in order to raise more money, say, well, you know, they're the problem. Mm-hmm. But the very people who are writing those emails know full well what's really going on is that it is an economic system more than anything else that is oppressing the majority of people keeping them constrained, keeping them unable to express their God-given potential because they don't have health care, they don't have a living wage, they don't have a way to get to college, they don't have a way to send their kids to college. Remember, in the 1970s, the average American worker could had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, and could afford to send their kids to college. There is a relationship between the fact that there was a thriving middle class And there was less division. Hmm. Now, on one hand, the social media platforms have definitely uh, created more opportunity for division. Uh, Divisive political characters have created more opportunity for division. But the real division that too many times they just don't want you to see is the division between those who have easy access to economic opportunity in this country versus those who don't. Is the media a part of the issue here then in in the way that the parties are? What is what is the media's role in our division? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the problem is that the media is now anytime you have a profit based system. So it used to be that there were rules even before Ronald Reagan was president. You there was a rule that he undid that had to do with the fairness. It was called the fairness doctrine. And Mm -hmm. so you would have to have both people, uh, both positions that were shared, which is a lot of the work that you're trying to do. Uh, President Eisenhower said 
that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. There are high-minded conservative principles. There are high-minded liberal principles. At our best, though nobody has a monopoly on truth, at our best, we are kind of yin and yang. Yes, you, yes, and, yes, but. Nobody has the whole truth, and it's Mm -hmm. only theirs. There's a book I read a few years ago by Matt Taibbi Mm -hmm. called Hate, Inc., And it talks about how it started with Roger Ailes. It started with that television show, Crossfire. And now, whether it's MSNBC, Fox, all of them, they get more clicks. They get more viewers because of just the way adrenaline works, Mm. right? The way the mind operates if they actually stoke conflict. And also because they they are the mainstream media is bought by, owned by, just a conglomeratization of these corporate forces really digging down into what the real problem is, is not allowed on those platforms because of the owners of the platforms. That comes from uh, something that happened during the um, Bill Clinton years that was called the Telecommunications Act of 1996. See, when I was a child, it was written into law that the same company could not own the newspaper and the radio station and the television station Hmm. because they were protecting the notion of the diversification of information. Once you stop that, what you've got is everybody in their silo. And people say, okay, well, if I want to invest my money, am I, am I better off uh, paying for a programming which brings people together, or will I make more money with programming that brings people apart? And because bringing people apart, whether it's the Jerry Stringer show or stuff on <laughs> Twitter or Crossfire type television program, uh, often makes more short term profit for the corporation. And that's what's happened to America. We have forgotten that doing the right thing, doing the ethical thing, doing the thing that is right for us and for our children and for our world is more important than doing the thing that brings short-term profit. So when you talk about what brings us together, I believe that there are people on the left and on the right who realize this has gone too far. both on the left and the right, we all have to get rid of our internal authoritarian. On the left and the right, nobody has a monopoly on morality or truth, but also nobody has a monopoly on the kind of mean-spiritedness that has set in to our country today. And I think all of us have to first say, heal thyself um, and start from a different place of honorable debate with those, not only with whom we agree sometimes, but with definitely with those with whom we do not agree. I have had at times more honorable, respectful conversation with those with whom I politically disagree than with some people I know with whom I agree politically. Mm-hmm. It's the divide is something deeper than just our politics. Yeah. Yeah. So um, our organization, our community, Braver Angels, uh, America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization working towards political depolarization. Although I tend to like to deepen that explanation by saying what we're really trying to do is revive the communal fabric of American democracy, let's say, striving towards Dr. King's beloved community. Um, we were originally called uh, Better Angels, as in the better angels of our nature, obviously, a, a quote from Abraham Lincoln's uh, inaugural address. And uh, we wound up changing our name for a couple of reasons. One had a little bit to do with the trademark dispute and uh, full, <laughs> full transparency. So there was that part of it. Um, but the other reason was this. We went from better angels to braver angels because, you know, in the work of civic bridge building, um, there's a traditional focus on empathy. And that's very important. It seems to me that being able to have some felt sense of why it is other people see the world in ways that are different from you, but arise from a human starting point that you can understand if only you were able to feel a bit of that person's experience. Um, That's indispensable to the work of healing across these political divides. But it also takes a great deal of courage to do that, not only because you'll have people on the other side of the aisle who might distrust you because of your political differences, but also, in my experience, because you may have people on your own side politically who look at you in the course of humanizing folks with whom you disagree, people whom they may feel are politically uh, a threat to their well-being, and say to you, 
well, you're selling out to the enemy, right? You're actually sort of enabling people who, depending on where you're coming from, you might think of as fascists or racists or communists or radicals or, or what have you. And so it actually takes some courage to be able to empathize with and humanize folks who disagree with you because sometimes your friends don't necessarily understand that. And uh, I guess um, I think that builds a little bit on what you were saying, but I, I, I'm wondering, you know, is that a part of political courage today too, in your view, having the courage to be able to empathize in the face of disagreements? Because not everybody will reward you for that. Well, I think that the courage that is needed today is the courage to say our truth as we understand it. You know, I don't think that either the left or the right has a monopoly on empathy. Mm. Where the divide lies in terms of high-minded principle is between those who feel that a, the government has a, an active role mm. in providing the empathetic uh, perspective via uh, public policy versus those who don't. Mm. So what happens is that often you'll find people on the left having policy positions which express greater empathy, but in their own personal interactions, you almost think, wow, that person has less empathy. Hmm. And then people on the right who do not stand for public policy that expresses as much empathy because they don't feel that's the role of government, but who you will find on a personal level have even greater empathy. You know, I, I know a woman, I have a friend who was a, a U.S. Congresswoman for years and she was a Democrat. And she taught, she told me something about when her daughter, she had a daughter who was in her 30s, mm. a mother with children, and she got lung cancer and she ultimately died. And she said, when I was going through my daughter's cancer treatments and after her death, she said, I was a little shocked. It was my Republican colleagues mm. who I fought with all the time on the floor, who came by the office more to ask how she was. They sent me flowers who came by more. So I think anybody who's been out there enough stops stops projecting onto people because you don't you don't uh, because you don't agree with me on a public policy that you don't have a good heart, yeah. which is what you see coming from both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. um, we have to learn, you know, it's like in the prayer of Francis Assisi. We need to ask more. Why do you come from the position that you come from mm -hmm. um, in the in the um, in the Course in Miracles? It says the. Primary responsibility is to accept the atonement for yourself before you even enter into a conversation to really seek to clear your own heart of your sense of self-righteousness and you know and they don't know, mm -hmm. carrying your ideology with you like a piece of baggage that you're going to just load onto the other person, but to really find that place of listening to other people. Mm. People want to be heard. People want to feel respected. And if and I find that if a person feels respected, if a person feels heard, then there's all kinds of things you can say. Martin Luther King said, people, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. Yeah. That's what we have to get rid of. Get rid of your underlying contempt. And then it's amazing the conversations we can have where we might not even leave the conversation having come to an agreement, but we came to a heart space where we're both going to walk away thinking in ways that we might not have and listening. And those there'll be a kind of a pattern of echo that, well, what she said made sense or what he said made sense. And that's how hearts change. And that's what will ultimately change the country. Getting rid of the underlying contempt is a message that is deeply resonant with me and I think with folks at, at Braver Angels. Uh, I strive as much as I can be uh, to be a student of and a practitioner of Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence. And what that philosophy was really rooted in was this conviction that love is a spiritual force uh, that can yield social change. Right. That's right. Uh, and so love in the way that King, of course, used the term was agape love, this idea of really an overarching goodwill, even towards those with whom with you, whom you disagree. Right. Or even people who are actively uh, threatening and even yeah. committed towards uh, persecution against you. Right. And so that standard is obviously an incredibly high standard. And yet, yet it's that's it's just a striking moral bar for us to consider in the context of our own of our own time. 
Now, the part of the challenge, however, in in embodying that way of being in politics, I think derives in part from the fact that when you're speaking to to millions and millions of people and we're doing this in this attention economy where oftentimes you have to operate in sound bites and we have mm-hmm. to, as you said, uh, have the courage to speak the truth as we see it. But sometimes mm-hmm. you have to speak the truth starkly, clearly, and in ways that people can remember. Mm-hmm. But we oftentimes, mm-hmm. I think, have to use language that, you know, may be simplifying for the purposes of communication. But that can also mean that people can read things into simplified language that may or may not be in line with what we want to communicate. So earlier, um, I put a flag on your uh, use of the term uh, neo-fascist authoritarian, and mm-hmm. you started to, I think, draw a bit of a, a distinction in terms of what you meant. And I, I want to pick up on that piece because I think, um, you know, and we'll have many Republicans listening. I'm a registered Republican myself, in fact. But, you know, just taking a, a, a few words like that, it would be so easy if, you know, I were somebody else, obviously, uh, to just clip that. And I know this has been done to me and so forth, right? Uh, and say, oh, Marion Williamson is saying that Republicans are neo-fascist authoritarians. You don't mm-hmm. have to listen to to Marianne. But can you can you express for for us one why why this is the language that you think accurately reflects the threat as you see it coming from forces on the right? But two, you know how you distinguish between the concerns you may have about the excesses of the right versus the human beings and the fellow Americans that you recognize as, 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 as being that, uh, whose, whose humanity, I, I think I you, you seem to recognize in, in yeah. so much of what you say. Yeah. Well, as I said, President Eisenhower said, there are high-minded liberal conser- uh, principles and high-minded conservative principles. The American mind is both liberal and conservative, he said. There is a golden mean. There are conservative principles, conserving that which is traditionally true, uh, holding people accountable, personal accountability and so forth, and um, the government not overreaching. The high-minded liberal principles are how do we take those principles and apply them liberally where necessary in order to serve people. So it's a yin and a yang. Both are important. And then there is such a thing as forces which are outside that golden mean. Mm. So what do I mean by neo-fascist? First of all, fascism is technically where governmental and corporate power are married. Mm. Governmental power is in a free society that's based on the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The role of government is to ensure the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not ensure the profit-making capacity, short-term profit maximization of a corporation. That shift from a government of the people, by the people, for the people, to a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations is the essential problem. That is Mm -hmm. not about left versus right. That is about corporate-backed versus humanitarian values, whether it is the values of the corporation or the humanitarian values on which we stand that take precedence. Now, when you ask me, what do I see that is fascist in nature? And and by the way, when I did say that, I said some factors in Mm -hmm. the Republican Party. I do not. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that upset me that I see on the far right upset my Republican friends as much as they upset me. Mm -hmm. So if you have, as we do, a governor of a state who has said that everyone who blogs about him should have to register with the state. That's authoritarian. That's not what we do in America. This is free speech. Somebody should be able to write about the governor if he wants to write about the governor Mm. and to be able to say, as long as it's not a threat to the safety of Mm. the governor, should disagree with the governor if he wants, but have to register with the state. That same governor, in fact, uh, has proposed that anyone who drives an undocumented worker in their car or has them in their home could be charged with a felony. Mm. There are laws right now in New Hampshire where I just was. The last two I just mentioned were Florida. Um, The uh, laws, uh, a law that's being proposed in South Carolina is 21 lawmakers who uh, would like to sign a bill making abortion punishable by death to the mother. Mm. 
There are a lot laws that some are trying to pass in New Hampshire that would tell LGBTQ students that they have to sit away from the rest of the kids and would tell the teachers that if you see a student who you even suspect of being LGBTQ, that you have to tell the parents. And if you don't, you could be charged twenty five hundred dollars. Those are undemocratic laws. Yes, absolutely. Calling those neo-fascist and authoritarian is not hyperbole. And I know many Republicans who would agree with that. Mm. Now, you have talked, uh, and not just here, but elsewhere, uh, a great deal about there being this divide in American society, which uh, you didn't quite use these terms, but is less left and right and more sort of establishment versus the people. Is that an unfair Mm -hmm. summation? Yeah, it kind of is. At this point, the realization among people that major corporations from insurance companies to pharmaceutical companies, big ag, big food, big chemical, um, uh, big oil, even gun manufacturers and uh, defense contractors, there is a growing realization, a growing populism on both the left and the right. They call it a horseshoe, you know, Mm -hmm. where people are realizing, wow, the average American has less economic and other kinds of opportunity, whether it has health, health, opportunity for health care, opportunity for an education, opportunity for a living wage, opportunity to afford a home. The majority of Americans are being squeezed. Hmm. The majority of Americans are being denied the same opportunities that a tiny group has because of corporate forces. And those corporate forces and their, their bottom line, Militant short-term cop, uh, profit maximization goals are what is economic, causing great economic despair and great economic hardship for people, whether they're on the left or the right. That corporation doesn't care if the worker is a Republican or a Democrat. They just want to squeeze the benefits and squeeze the pay and squeeze all the all the uh, the safety regulations and everything else in order to make money for the corporation. It's nothing personal. They don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. Hmm. So it sounds like you're campaigning to the horseshoe in some, in some, in well, some I'm, sense. I'm, I'm, I'm standing for what I think of the principles mm-hmm. of the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. that it is the role of government. Governments are instituted to secure the inalienable rights, God-given inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you look at a child who is going to a school where that child is not even able to learn to read by the age of eight or 10, mm. then that child then has a vastly diminished chance of ever graduating from high school and a greatly increased chance of incarceration someday. Mm. If the government is instituted to secure the rights of all Americans who achieve happiness, children are Americans too. Mm. But you are denying that child the right to pursue happiness. Mm. So the, the fact that part of this neoliberal economics has been to decrease investment in the public sector in order to increase investment possibilities in the private sector, we have what we have, which is children among the greatest collateral damage, but all disadvantaged peoples who are given less and less a piece of the pie yeah. uh, because of that prejudice. Now, I think it would be easy for uh, many people to listen to uh, some of your analysis of the problem here and say, well, uh, what Marianne is delivering is an indictment of capitalism. However, I think I've heard you say that what we see practiced or represented as capitalism uh, is not necessarily capitalism as it should be rightfully understood. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let's let's think about that. So. Adam Smith, who was the primary architect of free market capitalism, said free market capitalism cannot exist outside an ethical context. His first book, of course, was the the theory of moral sentiments. Yes. So in my own career, okay, I write a book. Mm -hmm. The publisher pays me money. We both put in energy and then the book is sold to the reader. Right. Everybody puts in energy and everybody leaves with value. That's righteous capitalism. That's righteous profit. Everybody puts in energy. Everybody leaves with value. And in capitalism, when it is practiced, 
with appropriate respect for the rights of all the stakeholders. Yes, the stockholders, the CEO and the workers and the environment and the community, then it can be a great win-win. But capitalism has gone over the last 50 years, American capitalism has swerved from its ethical center, Mm. which cannot so much be legislated, but we legislate more and more permission to do that. I'll give you an example. Before the 1980s, stock buybacks weren't even legal. Before the 1980s, it wasn't legal for a CEO to be paid with stock options. Now, once a CEO is paid in the form of stock options, then the CEO goes, hmm, if I squeeze more money out of the workers, I myself will make more money. So there's an inherent conflict. So now we've formed a form of capitalism, unfettered capitalism, unregulated capitalism, where so much focus is on making money for the stockholders and the CEO, but less and less opportunity for the workers. That's not righteous profit. That's not righteous capitalism. That is capitalism that is, is, is there's a malevolent strain there. Mm. And so it's about correcting. It's about course correction of American capitalism. So I think of myself, you know, you look at, at you know, everybody has this thing about the word socialism. If you see the most, the happiest, most advanced societies like in Europe and stuff, they are hybrids. Uh, all the you know the, the police department is basically a socialist institution. The um, the fire department is basically a socialist institution. Police and fire, it is understood in the society. You know what? Everybody should have access to it. Mm. That that's all. And that's all that anybody. Those of us who want to see universal health care, that there are some things that are so important. A fire in your body should be treated like a fire in your house. Everybody should have access to that. Right. And so people calling it socialism are just saying that because it's canard. It's a PR device that, that the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies came up with. But in a society where they have universal health care, you don't have 68,000 people dying every year from lack of health care. You don't have 18 million people unable to fulfill their medical prescriptions that their doctors gave them. You don't have one in four Americans living with medical debt. You don't have people rationing insulin. It's amoral, but an amoral system ultimately produces immoral results. Mm. Now, I've had I've had CEOs say to me, Marianne, if I did what you wanted me to do, you know, I just lose my job. The next person would be worse. Well, sometimes I agree with that person. I understand what they're doing, though, should not be legal. Understood. Now, you've laid out the this terrain in which well-positioned corporate forces are able to take advantage of our status quo in a way that enriches themselves and doesn't necessarily accrue to the general welfare of society. And I think that the success of Both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, although he didn't win, indicates the fact that there are many people left and right who are fed up with much of this. And so the establishment people divide is is a clear one. And it's one that I that I, too, talk about uh, quite a bit. Um, But there is another axis, I think, uh, worth talking a little bit about in this conversation, another axis of division um, beyond just the traditional left right binary. And that comes in the context of the of the culture, the culture wars particularly when it comes to matters of, of uh, social justice and uh, the traditional sorts of you know, relationships to things like free speech, liberal values. Many people perceive there as being a tension uh, between uh, the, the, the First Amendment and the right to speak freely on the one hand versus the pursuit of not just equality, but perhaps equity and recognizing uh, sort of this, this this fact, if a person considers it a fact, uh, that you know systems and institutions in American society are founded in ways that were not necessarily intended to equally serve all people, particularly if you were of a certain skin color. And so we have these fights in in uh, on college campuses, in governments, uh, in in institutions, and in people's families, where we sort of question, well. You know, if you're a person with a certain amount of you know privilege, should you be able to speak on a certain on a certain issue? If you're a white man, should you have an opinion on on reparations? Um, you know, you'll have a conversation that goes in one direction where you'll have white folks and folks who are, seem to be more 
privilege saying, hey, I'm being shut out of the conversation because of the color of my skin. Then you have people of color who say, look, this has been our experience for all of American history, right? And we are making making a, a case for sort of resetting the balance here uh, in terms of where privilege and, and opportunity lies. And we are just colliding with each other because we have such differing understandings of how American society operates. Is it systemically racist or is it, in fact, the land of the free? How do you look at the culture war issues when it comes to race, speech, identity, and the things that are really keeping us from being able to share the dinner table with each other uh, when it turns to these topics? I don't know how many now, but when I ran in 2020, there were 11 states in the union which did not even require one semester for our kids of U.S. government, U.S. history and U.S. civics. That's very, very dangerous because if people don't study what the Bill of Rights is when they're young, they don't know to be appalled later in life when it is when the Bill of Rights is under attack. The first principle that applies here is called e pluribus unum, out of many, one. The first foundational principle here that all of us on both left and right, this should be the idea that we are many peoples, many colors, many ethnicities, now even many sexes, if, if possible, sexuality. But there are unifying principles on which we agree to agree. And we have lost our emotional connection to the principles on which theoretically we have agreed to agree because too many people weren't even taught those principles. The idea of free speech is the idea that nobody gets to own America. Nobody gets to own the opinion of others. Nobody gets to take books off the shelves. Nobody gets to tell uh, colleges what courses they can teach. Everybody gets to have a say. We all own this country. The idea that free freedom of protest, the fact that we, we that some would treat protesters like they're bad people. We have the right to protest in this country. The whole idea of freedom in America is supposed to be the idea that you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt someone else or threaten someone else. But we sometimes so, have different definitions of what hurt and threat and harm might be. Seems like we can't even agree on that anymore. Well, I agree with you. And it takes, you know, you can't use the law like a bludgeon, you know, but I think some people seem more concerned by destruction of property value mm -hmm. than they seem uh, concerned with the destruction of human life. I'm sorry. I go for the destruction of human life being the being the bottom line, not the destruction of property. And the issue of property rights, this is age old. This is going back to the institution of slavery. That's exactly what the slave owners were arguing. These people are my property versus people who said, no, 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 human beings don't get to be a property. So the whole idea of of um of this kind of amoral neoliberal economics is the primacy of property rights. And there's an incredible book called Democracy in Chains, where it traces back to an economist named James, James Buchanan, who said back in like the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, he said the only way we can assure the primacy of property rights is to put democracy in chains. So some people are arguing for property rights. Others of us are, are arguing for the humanitarian and even moral values of American democracy, which is the idea of all people to have a chance here. So if you don't like transgender people or you don't like Jewish people or you don't like black people or you don't like white people or you don't like whoever, really, it doesn't matter what you think. This country belongs to all of us. And you can think whatever you want to think, but no, the government should be protecting the rights of all people to express what they want. Like we were talking about with Governor DeSantis in Florida. No, you don't get to tell a college in Florida that you can't have black queer courses. You know, you're talking about great American scholars here. Sandy Darity, Isabel Wilkerson. I mean, you, 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 no politician can come in and say to great American scholars, you can't teach. No, no, no. We don't do that in America. Mm. And that should be held as a sacred uh, as a sacred right. Uh, and all Americans should be offended and upset because, you know, if they do it to you, you might think, you know, well, they won't do it to me. You know, how how, how would you like it? You know, I would say to that person, if in the next four years, they're taking your books off the shelves. Mm -hmm. So 
I think it's very important that no one gets to feel that they can tell other people how to think, what to read. And once again, you have some of this authoritarianism on both left and right. I'm not well, saying you and, don't. And, 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 but and anybody would yeah. tell anybody what you can read, what you can think, what you can say. That's un-American. Now, do you have a position then in terms of how social media companies ought to be striking that balance on the one hand? or You perhaps, know, social media yeah. companies are a perfect example mm-hmm. of unethical capitalism. OK. A perfect example. I'll give you an example of what happened recently. Do you know about what happened with this AI Bing thing? Not sure. Bing? Okay. I think it's Microsoft. Okay. So there is this New York Times technology writer. So his job is to check out what's going on in technology. So Microsoft came out with this platform called Bing. And it's a chat where you're chatting with someone, uh, but it's not a real chat. Mm. So he, because he's a technology writer, start to have a conversation with the fake AI. And he said, now, I'm a happily married man and I'm a technology writer, so I'm pretty hardened. He said, this entity, AI, was fake and starts trying to convince me to leave my wife so we can be together. He said, (laughs) I was really rattled by this because if someone of a kind of weaker personality structure, he said, this could cause a lot of damage in people's lives. So he wrote an article about it in New York Times and he went on television to talk about it. Well, he went back to his computer after reporting about it, after, um, after being on television, talking about it. And you know what Bing said to him? You are a terrible, evil man. You are like Hitler for what you did to me. Now, the truth of the matter, John, you're laughing. But you know what? That's not funny. Mm. That's actually not funny. Microsoft should shut that thing down. Mm. But there's money to be made. And, you know, as I heard one person say on television, they said exactly what I was feeling. What we have to see as a society is just the fact you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. Mm. That, to me, is such an example of where conscience is needed. In the technology company, somebody just needs to say, this is dangerous. We're not going to do this. Mm. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because, wow, we can make a lot of money on this doesn't mean you should. Now we have the Seattle school board that is suing the tech companies out there because there's now been a proven causation, not just correlation between teenagers. They're on their, their tablets all the time. We now know that it increases teen anxiety suicide and depression, less sleep, inability to concentrate at work and inability to study and so forth. And these tech companies know that. Mm. And we've all seen like movies like The Social Dilemma. We all know, I don't care if you're a Republican parent, a Democratic parent, a left, right, none of that. None of us want to see our children. We know how hard it is being addicted to to these tablets ourselves as adults, but for these children who, who don't even have a fully developed pre, uh, prefrontal cortex, right. this is not a left-right issue. This is saving our children. Hmm. And so damn right, these tech companies should be uh, held to account. They should be regulated. But you know what would be really great is if somebody just displayed a conscience in those places. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a whole lot um there's a whole lot there because it seems for so many of us that social media in particular uh, has sort of had this deranging effect on our ability to communicate as a society. And so I, mm-hmm. I bring up social media con- uh, companies in the context um, also of this free, free speech question, because, you know, you do have this question of, well, if we're a society where free speech is valuable, but does that mean that folks would be able to say whatever they want on 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 social media or should we be sort of policing people's views on these platforms and that gets to be very sensitive uh, there's the technological context of that but i'm also curious to know if you have a sense of uh, the free speech question on campus culture you know you'll certainly have many folks many of them conservatives but not only them uh who feel that america's campuses at the pre- at the present moment are places that are not always welcoming of diversity of viewpoints, not always willing to give sort of equal uh, equal latitude to folks to express opinions that do not come within perhaps a very progressive mainstream oftentimes. And so I'm wondering if you see um, these things as being problematic as well. Yeah, I do see them as problematic. Uh, it, uh, I don't like whether it's coming from the left or the right. Mm. You know, it, unless somebody is advocating violence, 
Uh, I've seen both on the left and the right. Uh, I, I, that that's something that is just if something's un-American, I don't care if it comes on the left or the right. Trying mm. to shut people down is not the way we go here. Mm. Now, in terms of policing the Internet, this is the deal. Years ago, I was living in Michigan and there was a case that you might remember. It was very famous at the time. There was a girl being held by some evil man in his backyard in a tent. She was his slave, basically. He, he had two children by her. I mean, it was just mm. the most horrible situation. Yeah. Uh, the police had actually been to the house, but the guide seemed so charming. They didn't check, even though people had said something's going on in that guy's backyard. Right. I had a friend at the time who uh, was serving on the Supreme Court of the state that I was in. And mm. because she was my friend, I got to sit in on a conversation that she had with some people at the FBI about that case. And what I was hearing then, what the people at the FBI were saying to her, we don't have the resources. We just don't have the resources to do as much of this as we need to do. I remember um, several years ago, there was a fatal shooting at a synagogue. And they found out that the man who did the killing had put on his Facebook page, um, I'm going to go kill some Jews. Mm. And somebody had reported it, but they didn't get there in time. Mm. So clearly we need massive resources. I mean, if you think about all and sometimes it really takes expertise, but we do have people in this country who have that expertise that they can statistically they can't always 100 percent know. But a lot of times there are experts, psychological experts, linguistic experts who can say this one we should consider. We should check this out. Versus someone that we don't need to worry about that. But you have to have a lot of people. There are so many millions of entries onto the Internet. But as a society, we need to uh, provide the resources not to shut people down, but to be very aware when something. And we have seen that with some of the mass shootings where people had put on Facebook exactly what they were going to do. But it takes those psychological experts, those linguistic experts uh, to have a sense of whether this is a threat that we should take seriously or not. Mm, indeed. I want to bring our conversation to a close on this topic, sort of taking us back a little bit towards where we began. The question of spirituality, but even perhaps a little bit more specifically, religion's role in society. This is the question. And actually, let me give you a little context. At Braver Angels, we are an incredibly diverse community, politically, uh, ideologically, philosophically, but also religiously. And uh, we are seeking to build something that aspires towards this idea of the beloved community, where folks are truly included across the broad spectrum of our differences. Um, but that can be difficult in part because sometimes we just speak very different languages for things. And, you know, the, the, the tough thing about, you know, politics is that you can say one thing and mean it one way, but it seems to be coded another, another right? So, you know, you might mm -hmm. say Black Lives Matter and people think, oh, you're not saying Black Lives Matter. You're saying you're a communist. Or you might say Make America Great Again. And you're thinking, well, you know, I want this to go back to a day when the country was proud and patriotic and people hear you and say, no, you're a racist. That's what that's what that means. I had written a newsletter recently uh, for Brave Rangers commenting on the He Gets Us campaign. There was a group that produced these commercials that aired at the Super Bowl. They spent millions and millions of dollars on it, uh, sort of rebranding Jesus in America, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there was this, you know, if you watch the answer, these beautiful advertisements um, that show the raucous political divisions in American life uh, makes a statement endorsing the idea of loving our enemies, right? It, the, the language in the advertisement read, uh, Jesus loved the people we hate, right? Mm -hmm. A Jesus who loves everyone and is calling people in. And it got criticism from the left and the right. Folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, tweeted that she didn't think Jesus would spend uh, $100 million making, quote, fascism look benign, unquote, because the advertisements were paid for by the family of David Green, associated with Hobby Lobby, obviously. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that has its associations. And then from the other mm -hmm. end, uh, folks like Charlie Kirk, Conservative activist, founder of Turning Point USA, considered the advertisements to be woke, I think, because it didn't make any mention of Jesus being the way and the truth and the life, I suspect, or talking about sin and so forth. Rather, it was just about love and that, I think, for some folks, was a watered-down Jesus. 
I personally uh, was open about the fact that, you know, as somebody who would call himself a Christian, I, I thought that this was a beautiful thing. Um, and what I wrote towards the end of this newsletter was, um, we need more love and forgiveness in America. Is it wrong, therefore, to say that we need Jesus too? Because for me, that's what that's what Jesus is. And whether one is a Christian or not, love and forgiveness and understanding is, is I think, indisputably what we need. So however we can get there, you know, let's elevate that. But um, it was a controversial thing because many people heard my reference to Jesus and felt that, well, as soon as you introduce that, it's an exclusive thing. Uh, Whereas other folks thought like, hey, you know, I love the fact that this message is being associated with Jesus for, because for me, that's what Jesus is. And, and as a Christian, it makes me more excited about the work that you guys are doing, not less exciting. And so now we are wrestling, as I think American society has long wrestled, uh, with this sort of question of, you know, how do we pursue, um, how do we pursue a society of true goodness when Many of us are anchored to different traditions, speak different languages, and sometimes don't have the most positive association with the tradition that other, uh, the other side, so to speak, is bringing with them into a conversation. And sometimes it's hard for us to, whether we're talking about you know, evangelical Christians on one side or, or, or secular humanists uh, on the other side, it can be hard for us to, to put our stereotypes of what that is aside in order to hear whatever the better angels of that message might be. And I'm just wondering what your advice is to us at Braver Angels and to America, broadly speaking, um, as we strive towards creating this beloved community. How do we reconcile the fact that we come from different religions, we come from different traditions in trying to make this we happen? Have to, we really have to grow up in this country. Uh, I'm a Jew and I'm uh, on the left. But if all that ad said is Jesus loves the people you hate, I think that's a beautiful ad. Mm. Now, as a Jew, we don't have a problem with Jesus. We have a problem with the history of Christianity. They're very different. Mm. Um, nobody, you know, from a perspective of universal spiritual themes, no group gets to own Jesus. Mm. Jesus is a universal force in our hearts that many people are embracing from all different portals mm. um, of religious and spiritual identification. Um, leave people alone. That's what I say. Leave other people alone. Mind your own business. Somebody wants to put an ad and it's just an ad of love. Jesus loves the people you hate. Somebody would say, oh, well, you know, that was paid for by so-and-so. I'd roll my eyes, but I would still appreciate that moment that I saw the ad. If somebody told me, somebody says, well, it should be telling, you know, and a proselytizing what exactly Jesus is and what they would think. I'd roll my eyes. But I live in a free society. The ad, if the ad is just saying Jesus loves the people that you hate, we need more of that. I mean, they're not, we don't need less of that. We need more of that. So um, if that's all that it was, mm -hmm. right? So I think that we've all got to stop with the finger pointing at everyone else. We're not just standing in the breach. You know, Rumi, that line of Rumi. Um, out beyond all ideas of good or bad, right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Mm. You know, what happened to the world in which, you know, everybody acts these days like if somebody says something, I need to issue a press release. God really doesn't need your press release about everything that somebody says. <laughs> we don't really need your publicized opinion. Why don't you just listen less mm. and say what you think about it? Uh, why don't you listen more? I mean, and say what you think about it less. And I see that on the left and the right. What happened to just, you know, sometimes I hear people, particularly because I tend to be more on the left, I hear people more on the right who say things and I go, hmm. And it might not change my ultimate feeling about what a policy should be, but it deepened my understanding of something. I might even think that there have been times when I thought, I don't agree with that, but I think it's important that voice was out there. You know, I don't have to agree with something to see the value of that perspective because everything is about learning. Nobody has a monopoly on truth. And that's really, that's essential to American democracy. That's essential to freedom. Everybody owns the public square. Mm. And if it doesn't hurt anyone, sometimes I just want to say to people, why don't you just be quiet and listen? You know, they say that in an AA meeting, shut up and listen. 
people are just so quick to post their opinions these days. We need to awaken our ears as well as our hearts. That's what I think. I, I heard a great line from your uh, announcement speech, and I tried to remember it, but I seem to remember you saying that we have too much information, but too little understanding. That's exactly today. right. We are drown. I said we are drowning in information, but starving for understanding. <laughs> That's even better. That's right. And you can't have understanding when you're not listening. Hmm. You know, somebody. Uh, it was a man named Stanley Crouch. I don't know if you knew yes, who he was. He was absolutely standing. Well, mm-hmm. Stanley Crouch was a teacher of mine in college. Oh, and really? he said to me, "Yeah," and he was very, very, very. Um, Influential on my thinking and my growing up, Mm -hmm. very profound influence on my life. And he said to me when I was very young, college freshman, he said, you don't observe enough. Mm. You don't observe enough. If you're not observing and listening, then you're not taking anything in. Mm. Nothing is able to sort of gestate and alchemize within you and turn into wisdom. Mm. Indeed. Well, Marianne Williamson, I very much look forward to observing you on the campaign trail. And Thank I'm very, you. very glad uh, Thank you. that our folks and our members got a chance to hear you today. So thank you for joining us on Uniting America. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. All my best. God bless. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.